These Sunday nights we're looking at the inward conflict that uh, every Christian knows, and we're in Romans 7, which is the classic passage in Scripture that describes the tension that we feel. And so tonight we're going to look at verses 15 to 20, and I'll read them in your hearing. Now, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. These are the words of a very discerning and humble Christian. And every single Christian is mighty glad that they're in the Bible, just as they've been read to you now. The Christian is an enigma to himself. He doesn't understand what he does. From the moment the Lord's Supper ended to the time he was driving back with his children in the car, his mood can change to go from summer breezes to a winter storm. All in a moment, he's suddenly irritated by something that happens in the car and as mean as a mad dog to the people who love him the most, whom he depends on the most. Again, that day he might have preached a high sermon on the sanctity of marriage. Before the day was out, he could erupt with lustful desires. I'm not talking about a novice, a boy straight out of college, sure. This is a man who's known God for 50 years. A man who sings from his heart, how good is the God we adore, our faithful, unchangeable friend, whose love is as great as his power and knows neither measure nor end, is Jesus, the first and the last, whose spirit will guide us safe home. We praise him for all that is past and trust him for all that's to come. I'm not huffing and puffing about some man who has... Uh, you know, a specialized interest in theology, uh, a comprehensive doctrinal knowledge of truth. Men call it head knowledge, or they call it dead orthodoxy. Uh, they describe him as an expert in Burkhoff's systematic theology. That's the book they generally pillory. I'm not talking about uh, this uh, caricature of the Calvinist. I'm talking about a man who loves experiential religion who loves to read about revivals, someone who knows the blessing of a close walk with God, somebody who never fails to attend the prayer meeting. It's this experiential believer who is showing to us that he has a split personality. He's the one who doesn't understand what he does. What he wants to do, doesn't do. What he hates doing, 
He does. He sighs about his condition. How can I behave like this? He's older, an older man. So he's more clever and subtle in hiding his sins from those who know him best. And he knows that too. And he groans at the hypocrisy that he's involved in. He's richer and he knows how he can get stuff that he couldn't afford when he was younger. And the stuff he gets isn't good. And that makes him shake his head with self-disgust. Why? Why does he do what he doesn't want to in his new heart? Why, when immediately he's done it, he hates himself? His lamentation is, I just did again what I hate doing. That behavior is one aspect of the Christian life. One aspect. And only a very great and honest and discerning and spiritually minded man like the Apostle Paul would confess. Would open up and say, this is how it is with me. Someone has compared the, uh, the life of the Christian to a man walking down a lane in the night. And he stumbles and he falls into a deep puddle of muddy water. Now he clambers up and he's wet and stinking and he walks on his way. He doesn't realize how stained his clothes are until he gets to the end of the lane and he approaches the lamp that's hanging there at the end of the lane. And the closer he gets to that light, the more conscious he is of his filthiness. How the muddy water is just dirtied his trousers and his coat and his hands are stinking and it's so hard to get off. So that's the analogy, you understand it. The deeper the work of grace is, the more God is working in your life, the nearer to God you get, the nearer to the light of the world, then the more you're aware of the defilement of sin. And increasingly concerned to be red and cleansed of every spot and stain and wrinkle that besets us in this fallen world. Sin is an offense to the mature Christian. And increasingly he longs for purity. Oh, for a closer walk with God. Oh, for a new heart that's washed and cleansed. Oh, wretched man that I am. He'll say things like that in his private prayers. And that is a sigh of a man who is making progress in the Christian life. Progress in becoming more like Jesus Christ. But an unholy man, someone with a mere profession, is a man who lives at peace with his saints. And is blind to their defilement. His sin is no problem to him. Well now let's see what Paul says in these extraordinary verses that I've read to you. Firstly, he says, God's law is good. Verse 16, I agree that the law is good. That reflects his deepest convictions. He's not saying that. What's your morality, Paul? What standards do you try to live by? And he doesn't fob off with, well, I always try to do my best, and things like that. 
He does things he hates. He doesn't approve of all his actions. And that's crucial that he has a genuine hatred of things that are tawdry and mean and cruel and hurtful to others. If he shrugged and was indifferent and he said, well, sometimes I'm good and then sometimes I'm bad. That's life. Then we'd be very alarmed with a person who excused himself in such a way. But Paul always hated his falls into sin. And that hatred was basic. It was a core value that never changed. It was a characteristic of his soul. A love for the good and holy and perfect will of God. You know that no good road is perfectly flat. You know that. Every good road is built with a slight camber, a slight curve, so that the water and the slush and the mud doesn't flood the street, but it's pours down into the gutters and is taken away into the drains. In the heart of every Christian, there is a camber, too, in just the same way. And that camber takes away always our evil sins and tells us that the law is good. It's built into every one of us by God. Grace does that for every Christian. We, we are conscious of, of a battle. And that, oh, the law of God is our highway code on the new way to heaven. And it's good to have that camber in our lives. So Paul's deepest and most certain conviction was that the law of God was good. That it had a, oh, a beauty about it. It had a loveliness. It had a righteousness through and through it. Paul says, when it condemns me, it's just, it's right. It breaks my proud heart. It brings me very low, and that's exactly what I need. There was a great American writer, I read about her in the uh, Times, uh, and she was uh, speaking to a group of children. I don't think it was at a graduation, but she'd been asked to come. She had some connection with the area, and they said, oh, they were honored because she was a bestseller, and so on. They were thrilled to have her, the keynote speaker. They'd read her books, and they were set books in the English course in the school, and they listened intently to what she had to say. But there was one thing she said to them that they all remembered. And this is what she said. Don't aim for happiness. Don't aim for happiness. That's too low a standard. Uh, A determination that you want to be happy in your life. They were really struck by that. It was an arrow that God shot into the hearts of many of those children. Don't make... Happy feelings. Your goal in life. Life is far more precious and important than that. Uh, We Christians say, aim for honoring God. And pleasing God. And being like Jesus Christ. It's never too late to start. You know, the devil will be speaking now, whispering in your ears, as you hear me saying things like that, and the devil will be saying to you, it's too late for you. You've made a mess of your life. (laughs) That's what the devil is saying to some of you. Now, we know his devices. We're not ignorant 
of what he does. Don't listen to him. Aim. Aim for godliness. Aim for likeness to Jesus Christ. What I want in my life is the will of God. My creator, my judge. The one who can become my savior. And then everything that serves that end can be for your blessing and your good. Every humbling. Every time someone says no to you. Every thorn in the flesh. Every heartache. Every new awareness of just how sinful you are. It will advance you. It will motivate you. It will move you on and on in the right direction. Paul says, I agree that the law is good. Well, no, the question is, do, do you, does everyone here tonight agree that God's law is a good law? Do you wholeheartedly agree? Do you agree when you are alone with a member of the opposite sex? Do you agree when every powerful instinct is urging you to disagree? The word agree, it's translated in the authorized version, some of you know it uh, Um, better is to consent. I consent that the law is good. It means to speak with. It means taking the side of the law against the strongest feelings and desires and longings. And Paul says, I can make this statement. I can make it. I agree the law is good. When I have an opportunity to put my hand in the drawer... And there's no one around and I can take that money. I agree with it when I'm tempted to lie, to get out of a jam, or badmouth someone. I agree that the law is right to say, ah, don't behave like that. Don't do these things. And when I give in and and fall and do the unthinkable, I soon agree, what I did was bad. What I did hurt someone. It was cruel. It was daft. What a wretched man I am. I don't understand myself. I, a Christian, behaving like that. Only uh, a true Christian can magnify the law of God to his own condemnation. Can support God in God saying, you know, that was a silly thing. That was a bad thing that you did. But David... uh, how he confesses the awful things he did to God and he says uh, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you condemn. He justified God's condemnation of himself for what he did with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband Uriah. There was a boy and he was sent home from school by the headmaster for really wretched behavior. And the kind neighbor bumped into him and she said she was sad to hear about his expulsion. I was sorry to hear such an account of you, she said. I'd thought 
you had better principles. And the boy said to her, it wasn't the principles. My principles were all right. It was for my bad conduct that they sent me home. And Paul wants us to understand his principles, how high he regarded the law of God. Only a Christian can speak. As he, he speaks here, verse 12, the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Again, verse 14, he wants to underline it. The law is spiritual. Verse 22, he delights in God's law in his inner being. So his attitude to the law is like a marriage service that he's going to be involved in with Miss Law. And I say to him, I'm standing here, and I say to him, Paul, do you take Miss Law to have and to hold in sickness and in health, in wealth and in poverty, and to cling to Miss Law all the days of your life until death parts you from her? Paul says, I consent, I agree. His heart and mind agree to embrace Miss Law and have her only unto him. Paul will say to you, oh, I I love Miss Law. I think about her day and night. It's such a description of what goodness is. I, I love its tangibility. I love those ten words. They're a transcription of the very character of the God who's become my father and my savior. They're an expression of how in my best nature I want to live, day by day. And so however Paul sighs that he doesn't understand how inconsistently he lives, and that he can break what he loves, and grieve at doing it, nevertheless, he says, that is the foundation, the ground rock on which I'm building my life and I'm building my home and building my family and I endorse the law of God he he was still saying that when for the 10,000th time he broken the law of God he was saying the direction of my life and my chief end is not to obey the flesh It's, it's not to be taken up by the gang and do what the gang do. It's to do what God's good and holy and lovely law tells me. Now, um, it's very useful that we're looking at uh, one Christian's experience here. What he is so frankly and openly telling us about his existential life. And uh, I, I use that slant, and it's helpful because it helps to draw us in. We can identify with him. He is the archetypal Christian. Paul is a sinner saved by grace and kept by grace. He's God's great achievement. God made this man who was a self-righteous Pharisee and a cruel man, a wretched man. A persecutor, a hater of the Lord. He made him a wise man, a humble man, a discerning man, who expressed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he expressed his inner feelings, what they were. And they are real, 
and they are a standard then and they are a comfort for us but I've just got to move on from um, saying that they reflect Paul's feelings to say that uh, this is what we call a didactic passage it's a teaching passage the Holy Spirit has brought you here tonight in order to teach you then about a right attitude to the law of God every new covenant Christian we've already seen that when we break any one of the ten commandments it's not because there's something wrong with the commandments Paul completely exonerates the law from being the cause of his falls. David, he could in no way excuse his sin by saying, if the law hadn't said to me, do not commit adultery and do not commit murder, then I wouldn't have acted as I did. And we know that. He would never say that. He was too godly a man to say that. He, he couldn't bluster. If I'd been told, all you need is love. If I'd been told that, then um, it would have been all right with Bathsheba, and it would have been all right with Uriah, and it would be all right in the country. You know, those are lies, aren't they? They're ways of self-justification. It was not the thou shalt not commit adultery that made him act as he did. It was his choice. He saw her. He wanted her. He was the king. And he took her. Now, Paul is wanting us to be absolutely sure of a couple of things. The law of God by itself cannot save any one of you. The law of God by itself can't sanctify. That is, make you holy. Lift you up. Elevate you. It can't do that. That's not its function. The second thing I want to say to you tonight is. I want to look at this phrase of Paul in verse 18. Nothing good lives in me. It's it's a puzzling phrase. Because uh, here's someone born of God. Here's someone indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Here's someone justified by faith in Christ. Someone who's been adopted into the family of God. Someone who's been united to Jesus Christ like a branch in a vine. And here he says something as bleak and self-condemning as nothing good lives in me. Surely this is just a dark exaggeration. But you see, ah, let's look more carefully at what he is saying. He doesn't say, there's nothing good in me, full stop. He says, nothing good lives in me. And then he adds six qualifying words. In other words, he says, that is in my sinful nature. And so you see, he makes a distinction. And it's an absolutely crucial distinction for us all between I myself 
and sin living in me. I myself, uh, by the grace of God, am ransomed and healed and restored and forgiven. But in my sinful nature, there's nothing good. Dead in trespasses and sins. There's nothing good in the sin that dwells in me. But in Paul, oh, in every one of you who are Christians, there's much that is good and wonderful and praiseworthy, and we thank God for you. God, the Father, has set up his abode in you. God, the Son, lives in your heart and life. God, the Holy Spirit, the three members of the Godhead reside in the life of Paul and every single Christian. There's the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces, and it's there in every Christian. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control, nine fruit. And it's there in every Christian. It's not there hundredfold in every Christian. It's not there breaking the branches with the heaviness of the fruit in every Christian, but no Christian is barren. If the Holy Spirit indwells you, then he makes his presence known. He produces then these graces in your life. And some Christians are very young in the Christian life, but oh, there's a fragrance uh, about them. Uh, so goes forth to sow, and Jesus says, much of the seed he sows falls in good ground, and there's a sixtyfold, a hundredfold increase of what he sows. But more than that, we're looking at this phrase that there's no, nothing good in me. Don't you desire that that wasn't the case? Don't you have maybe a faint desire, but a real desire for what is good? Verse 18, Paul says, I have the desire to do what is good. So, um, if he has a desire to do what's good, then it doesn't mean when he says there's nothing good living in me that there is nothing anywhere at all from every cell of my brain to the tips of my toes and every hair on my head. It's all rotten. Only the devil is that true about and if you came to me and, and you were, you know, it was a bad time for you. You said, Pastor, can I come and see you? And you wanted to come and talk to me. And you would say to me, you find nothing good in you at all. And I would say to you, um, do you want something good? Do you desire something really lovely and good to be in you and say oh yes pastor that's my greatest desire then you are seeking you are longing you are trouble about it you talk to me about it that's something good would you be like a man who just wanted to bury something and he dug a hole in a field and there he found wonderful treasure would you find some treasure here tonight? You've come along and uh, just as the rain starts to fall and this grey day and you've come here and you've never realised that 
Here in a place like this, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus Christ. But you're someone who love you and forgive your sins and he'll be your Lord and Savior and your companion and he'll never leave you and he'll keep you and he'll take you across that river where there's no bridge and he'll take you safely home to heaven. And Isn't it wonderful to have Jesus Christ offered to you be your Lord and, and your Savior. You didn't know you were going to find treasure like that here tonight. There's much in all our lives that's bad and there's no perfect thing that any of us have done yet. But we have a desire to do what's good. We want to love God more. We want to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. We want to overcome evil with God good we want to have some sweet assurance that Jesus is our Lord and Savior we want the the grace of the Holy Spirit in our lives to sing now I belong to Jesus Jesus belongs to me not for the years of time alone but for eternity you have plenty that's bad join the gang Here is a sinner preaching to sinners about the lack of good in all of us. But but I'm saying you have a molecule of desire for a better life. You have a spark. And here's the Savior and he says when he sees a burning flax and it's almost gone out he doesn't extinguish it he cups it and he breathes gently upon it and he fans it into a flame so if I'm dealing with a a professing Christian and he's depressed and he's running himself down and he says I believe in Jesus but I'm a rotter through and through there's no good in me that's what the Bible says then I would I might I would Say to him, don't say that. It's the devil makes you say that. You're a professing Christian. And you know what that means. It means God knew about you and set his love upon you before the foundation of the world. He chose you to be with him forever. He lives in your heart and he loves you. Knowing all about you. Seeing the file. Every comma and dot. He loves you. And there are many things wrong that you've done. There was a time when your heart was at enmity against God. It's not at enmity against God. Is it? Tonight the enmity is against yourself. You are grieving that you are more consistent, that there's not more integrity, that there's no not more strength to resist temptation, and that you're having to battle with the remnants of remaining sins. That those sins that troubled you when you were a boy, when you were a student, they still trouble you today. And the devil wants to rub it in. The devil wants you to think that things are much worse than they are. I'm saying to you, if you're a Christian tonight, the only way you could look at the sins that we so easily commit is 
forgiven. They're all pardoned. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all our sin. The third thing I want you to see tonight is that our falls are due to indwelling sin. And uh, the way Paul speaks about it in these words I read to you uh, is very striking. They're they're almost dangerous. Uh, They could be so easily abused. It's like corrupt tele-evangelists caught in fraud, caught in immorality, and then their excuses Ah, the devil made me do it. Well, we scorn such a comment. And uh, we have the danger of looking at Paul's statements here and thinking, yeah, yeah, it's not you but sin in you that did it, yes. But I think you you have to look at them at their face value. And I think you have to understand them and believe what they say to us about the triumphing grace of God in our lives. Now, with some of the other doctrines in the Bible, unless there's some hint of danger in how you express them, are you believing the plain statements of Scripture? For example, the, the preaching of justification that there's a full pardon and full forgiveness for all our sins, past, present, future sins, if we entrust ourselves into the hands of Jesus Christ. That we face a future of glory and heaven all through what Jesus Christ alone has accomplished and we make no contribution to that except We give him ourselves. We give him our sinful selves. And if you are understanding that message then and the comprehensiveness of the pardon that there is, it will inevitably cause you to think, well, if that's true, shouldn't I continue in sin that grace may abound? Shouldn't I be giving the grace of God plenty of scope? Or if I preach to you about God's sovereign choice of a vast number of people, more than any man can number. Shouldn't that cause people to say, well, God is being unjust. Why does he blame anyone if, if he has chosen these people and homed in on them and opened Lydia's heart? And with these verses before us, if you ask Paul, why does he sin if he loves God's law? And he says, verse 17, it's no longer I myself who do it. It is sin living in me. And again, he repeats the words. He's not ashamed of this. uh, And he doesn't say, um, well, you know, I, I mean it in this way. He repeats it, verse 20. If I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it. But it is sin living in me that does it. He couldn't be clearer. He is somehow separating himself from remaining sin. He is the new creation in Jesus Christ, and he loves the law of God. He hates breaking it. 
the law wasn't the cause of his sinning. Well, who was responsible? How do these sins erupt so that down Paul falls? He tells us, it's not I who did it, but sin living in me. And the young theologians in the congregation and the young students of Christian ethics and morality are instantly alarmed. They will say, but King David mustn't say that it wasn't David who took Bathsheba and arranged the murder of Uriah. Oh, it was my sin living in me that did it. David can't excuse himself like that. Or Peter couldn't say, it wasn't Peter who cursed and said, he never knew that blasted man Jesus. It was Peter's sin that did it. Is that a cop-out? Would the elders accept then that defense from a man who had committed some crime, a church member, and we wanted to talk to him about it, and, and he said as his excuse, well, it wasn't me who did it, it was sin dwelling in me. Well, we wouldn't accept that. No judge, no jury would accept such an argument for your defense, hurting someone. Well, now let's think of a number of important points. And the first is this, that believing those words and using that argument doesn't take away our responsibility for what we've done. Paul is not exonerating himself. He's not removing the blame from his actions. He's not saying, it wasn't my fault that it happened. It was my sin that made me do it. He's not saying that. What Paul is saying is something like this. I've done many awful things as a Christian, while I was a Christian. But I've done them under the influence of something which is not of the Lord. It's not from the Lord. And that wickedness doesn't dominate my mind. I've been delivered from its lordship over me. The bad things that I've done as a Christian don't truly represent my real Christian character in my mind, in my thinking, in my heart of hearts. I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ and the law of Christ. That's my habitual character. But occasionally then, oh dear, I'm swept away by sin and I do things that are horribly out of character. That's what Paul is saying. Now you find this elsewhere in Paul's writings. He makes a distinction between himself and another agent. Well, he's not denying that he actually did them and I plead guilty and I need forgiveness for them. He's telling us why he did them. But he's not offering the fact of his sin as the excuse for doing them. Let me give you some examples so that you can better understand Paul's thinking. Because I want you to think like that too. The first example is Paul talking about his labors for Jesus Christ. How he worked, his travels, his dangers, prison, whippings 
shipwrecks, hunger and thirst, all his preaching and counseling and praying and letter writing. He worked harder than Peter. He suffered more than Peter. He traveled further than Peter. And then he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. Not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Now you understand he's not saying he didn't do those things. That he was sort of standing back and he was being energized by swallowing a tablet with the five letters G-R-A-C-E on them. And he was watching himself do these things. No, Paul was doing them. He was acknowledging. He was the one who did them. He, with knocking knees, stood up and, and, and faced people and preached to people and felt the stones coming in and the dogs being turned on him and the whippings. He worked harder than any first century Christian. But it was not his energy, his IQ, his spirit that did what he did. It was grace. It was omnipotence acting to sanctify and gift and use the Apostle Paul that was the explanation. We understand that, don't we? All of us as Christians here tonight will say, I am what I am by the grace of God. All of us will sing, and every virtue we possess, and every victory won, and every thought of holiness are his alone. God did it, not me. Or again, when Paul is talking about his Christian life, he says in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And Paul is saying, the conception of his life, how he began to become a Christian, that was through Jesus Christ opening his heart. And the continuance of the Christian life, that he's gone on, Uh, That's been the daily endowment and love of Jesus Christ to him because without Christ he could do nothing. And the consummation when one day he'll get to heaven and he'll be transformed and he'll look like the Savior. He hasn't worked to do that or earn that. It's grace that's been triumphant in him. The whole origin and maintenance of his life has been a loving Savior that's watching him. I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or again, um, when Paul is describing for us then the acts of the sinful nature. Galatians 5, 19, 20, 21. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. He's not excusing himself when he describes them as the acts of the sinful nature. He's not saying, well, of course, I didn't do them. It was my sinful nature that did them. That's not the point. The point is, it wasn't the indwelling Holy Spirit. That didn't do those things. It was the flesh. It was remaining sin. It was another law in his members. That's the reason that we can surprise ourselves by blurting out cruel and hurtful words. The things I hate, I do. 
because of remaining sin. And all the good and kind things that I've done and the wise things I've done, it's just because I have the spirit of truth in me. I have help from the Bible. I have the example and encouragement of of you all. When Peter refused to eat food with Gentiles at fellowship lunch in a church, it was an action of his sinful nature, yes, but it was his, his decision. He's responsible for, for judging Gentiles that they were second-rate Christians. He cowardly followed his sinful nature. There is no way I'm saying that you can shelve your responsibility for what you have done wrong in your life by saying, ah, it was my sinful nature that did it, not me. That is not what Paul is saying there. He's giving us the explanation. He's not giving us an excuse. And again, looking at this great phrase then, that it's not me but sin dwelling in me, Obviously, Paul is a Christian speaking these words. Paul is saying, my great problem in my life is remaining sin. Only a Christian, only a Christian can make a confession like that. And that Paul could make that confession. He'd seen the glory of God. He'd met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He was full of the Holy Spirit. God blessed his preaching. He had the power of the Spirit upon him again and again in, in all he did. And yet, he tripped and fell. He unwittingly fell into sin. He had moments of irritation, snapped, and lust and anger. And he doesn't minimize those actions. He doesn't toss out a, a casual comment. Well, it's the flesh that made me do it. It's, it's not like that. These words are very weighted and sober words. There's an evil power present in me, he says. There's an evil power in you. In every one of you. It isn't nice and tame. It's like a tiger in captivity. And it was born in captivity. And it's been familiar with uh, keepers. And being fed by hand. And it's had the kindness of, of men around it all the time. But no one will go into that cage alone with a tiger. Because it is a tiger. It's never safe to share a cage with that, and that is a picture of remaining sin in us. You treat it with respect. It's crouching at the door, we're told in the Bible. It's ready to pounce on us. The apostle as a Christian is saying, I let that tiger get too near at times. I need to bow before God and to say to him, I'm sorry, Lord, for that fall, for that retaliation, for those thoughts of lust, for that outburst of temper. He condemned himself. I'm sorry, he said. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm such a pathetic Christian. He knew the tension between the flesh and the spirit. You know your friends in school. 
They don't have that tension at all. But you as a Christian have it. You have the new nature. You have the Holy Spirit in your life. And then you have the flesh and the battle between the two. I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me. And that is the great I that Paul wants to be the conqueror every day. And he longs for that I to be like Jesus Christ one day. And then I want to say this too. Whatever these words mean, they do want us to understand that there is such a reality as healthy Christian dualism. There's a battle, in other words, between the flesh and the spirit in every Christian. And you can go very quickly from uh, Romans 7, which is the fullest explanation of it, to Galatians 5.17, where Paul writes, For the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. There's a duel here. So here's the flesh and he has the rapier. And he's slashing and he's attacking and he's thrusting at the spirit. They're at war with one another, the flesh and the spirit. There is in every Christian an active power. It's sin that dwells in him. The life of the Christian on earth is the life of a sinner saint. He's in the body, ah, but he's also in Christ. Jesus is in him, sin is in him also. So within the confines of the space that I occupy, there is tension, there is conflict. In Christ I belong to a new age, I'm in a new kingdom, and through sin then I'm in this present evil world. And any attempt to minimize the presence of the sinful nature, any promise of if you can let go, you can let God take over, it's just empty language. Anything that promises you, you you won't need to experience the conflict if you only have the second blessing. That's vain and empty language. Anything that dulls us to the reality of the Christian conflict that we're going to be engaged in during this sermon now and then for the rest of our days it's not helpful to you as Christians any promise are you can be delivered from the, the Christian warfare you beware and the fourth thing I want to say about this business of not me but sin dwelling in me You've got to know the difference between sin's presence and sin's reign. Okay, I often make the point to you, sin is the king that reigns over unbelieving men and women. It tells us not to trust in God. It tells us not to listen to the preacher. It points out things that irritate you and distract you from the gospel message. It tells you not to have confidence in the blood of Christ to forgive you for your sins. And every unbelieving, unrepentant man obeys what sin tells him to do. Every non-Christian in, in this town is a slave of sin. And all of them are boasting that they are free people and that they've been delivered from 
chapel-going and church-going like the suckers that still go along there. They snapped the chains of religion, but they haven't snapped the chains of sin. Sin dominates. Sin rules. Sin is telling them. Don't read the Bible. Don't pray. Don't think about death. Don't think about eternity. And they do it. Sin, subtle, insidious, threatening, enervating. Now the same sin is in us Christians. The same sin, but it doesn't dominate. I don't listen when sin says, don't read the Bible, don't pray, don't live a holy life, don't love Jesus Christ, don't treasure him, don't make him the altogether lovely one in your life. I don't listen to sin when sin tells me that. Sin doesn't reign over me. I have a new master. I have a new Lord. He reigns over me. There was a time in Paul's life when sin possessed him. Sin said, guard the coats while they throw jagged stones at Stephen and kill him. And clap your applause. And he did what what sin told him to do. It's not like this in Romans 7. He hates sin. He longs to do good. He picks himself up when, when he falls down. So someone has described it like this. The Christian situation is sin has its habitation in us, but sin doesn't have its domination over us. And that's my point. Sin is there. Sin, you know, lurks under the stairs. Sin is in some dark corner. Sin scuttles along the skirting board. Uh, Sin pops into a hole to lick its wounds under the floorboards. Remember the story we would say as children. Let me modify it. Um, I'm describing the Christian now. In a house, there's a little room. And in the room, there's a little cupboard. And in the little cupboard, there's a little drawer. And in the drawer, there's a little box. And in the box, there's a little bag. And in the bag, there is sin. Well, I'd scream it out, of course, when I'm telling that story. We shout that last word. In every corner of our lives, in every room, there's a little cupboard, there's a little corner. and Sin is there. But that's where it is. And then we describe the Christian also like this. In a house there's a room with a glorious shining light. And in the center of that room there's a dais, a platform. And on that platform there's a golden throne. And on the throne there is a lamb that's been slain. And that lamb is King Jesus. And that's the Christian. And the Christian is waiting for the last pocket of sin to be expelled from the house and for Jesus' influence to be spread. And Jesus walks through the house. It's his house now. He's the Lord of this house. And he goes to every room and every activity and he's there with us as we're typing and as we're going through our, uh, our web. And he's there in the bedroom and in the bathroom and in the kitchen and as we're with our children and with our wives and husbands and the Lord Jesus is with us there. He's the Lord. Sin scuttles. Sin hides. 
sin is in our habitation, but it's not our domination. An acquaintance of mine was working one day, and he was cutting out some uh, pages from some magazines, and he was keeping them in special folders, and his little daughter came in, and oh, she enjoyed what daddy was doing, and so she said, could she help him? So he gave her uh, a little scissors, and he pointed her to some magazines. He said, cut out those pictures for me. Oh. And then he ignored her and he, he went to work. And the next time he noticed her, she picked up the National Geographic magazine that had come through the post that day that he'd not read yet. And she was busy cutting out <laughs> the pictures of the wonderful jungle scenes on the deserts. And <sighs> he could have shouted at her. He could have slapped her. He could have shown his frustration. But he had the Lord Jesus in his life. And he thanked her for helping him and gently took the scissors from him and said, go and help mummy now. (laughs) He knew that the law is good. The law says, love your five-year-old neighbor as you love yourself. Love your friend who has dementia as you love yourself. And the desire to do that good, that by grace is in every heart. Oh, we don't do it perfectly. We don't do it as we would do it. And we grieve our impatience and the sharpness of our tongues. We grieve these things. But we're not what we used to be. And we're not what we will be. And we are what we are by the grace of God. And when we sin, it's not because of the insufficiency of grace. It's because remaining sin is there. Oh, it troubles us. And alas, it will trouble us. But my friends, we'll be in glory soon. Soon we're going to meet at Jesus' feet. and There won't be any, any heartache, no sin, no sorrow there. What a wonderful place it will be. Our Heavenly Father, we ask thee now to keep us. And when we fall into sin, not to allow Satan to say, you're not a Christian, you're a hypocrite. But, oh, to treasure the words of the Lord Jesus Come unto me, I'll give you rest. Learn of me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Thank you that this is the case. Help us when we are provoked to retaliate and hurt. Oh, give us a thousand times more patience and love and kindness than we've ever had before. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.